Hello, welcome to Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, joined with Rachel Washburn and Peter Chur, as well as Major General Spider Marks on the podcast today. Very excited to speak about a few things. Obviously, we're going to touch on North Korea. Uh, we will discuss the elections that are coming up in Turkey, uh, as well as what's going on in the market, how those geopolitical events affect the market. Uh, and then also a little personal story from uh, myself, one of the veterans uh, at Academy Securities. So let's go ahead and first start out with uh, some of our geopolitical topics. And for that, I am going to ask uh, Rachel, what do you have for us today? Thanks, Andrew. Uh, General Marks, we're a week out from the summit. What are you What are you seeing? What are you thinking about? Um, what do you want to see next? Thanks, Rachel, and uh, and Andy. Thanks for setting us up this morning. Um, very honored to be with you guys. Um, it's quite phenomenal when you think about it. Just uh, you know, a week ago, the President of the United States shook hands with the Chairman of the North Korean Communist Party in Singapore, and you go, my goodness, who would have guessed that? I mean, as a guy who's been looking at the Korean Peninsula and spending most of my adult life on the Korean Peninsula, uh, you know, for the past 40 years, uh, nobody, nobody would have predicted that this would have taken place. So um, despite the euphoria, frankly, and there should be legitimate euphoria as a result of this summit, uh, there, there's a lot of green on that pool table between handshake and successful outcome. And we have to be very, very measured about what these next steps are. But in order to maintain the momentum following this summit, what I'd like to see literally in the next, uh, over the course of the next couple of months is exchange of delegations. I mean, a very, a very interesting image would be a U.S. Air Force C-17 landing in Pyongyang. And out of the back end of that bad boy comes delegations that are going to exchange what we think the protocols are going to look like. There might even be the beginning of some inspection teams uh, conducted by DOD, different agencies that are a part of the nuclear regulatory type efforts that the United States does so incredibly well. We might even invite the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, to be a part of those initial inspections. Who knows? But I would love to see dust being kicked up. Uh, on the heels of this, uh, this summit that just took place. And I'm, I'm confident we'll see something because we can't afford to lose the momentum. The second we lose the momentum, um, we're already beginning to lose the media because the media is ripping this summit apart for things it didn't do. For example, the human rights discussions. Well, look, this was not about human rights. Clearly, North Korea is a human rights violator in this dictator in the North, and the Kim regime has been in place for 70 years. They have little regard for their citizenry, but this was about nuclear issues. This was about the potential denuclearization of the, of the peninsula. This was about reducing the temperature in terms of an existential threat that North Korea posed, which is the reason this summit took place, is because North Korea has nukes. So I'd like to see some progress, very, very small steps, but very discernible steps that start moving us in the direction of scoring points, if you will, around the summit. And I think that will happen. You know, Jim Mattis, Secretary Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, was just walking out of the Pentagon yesterday, and the media assaulted him like they always do. And they said, Mr. Secretary, do you have any signals, any indicators that North Korea is denuclearizing? 
And without missing a beat, Jim Mattis said, no, haven't seen a thing. But then again, it's only been seven days. There's a lot of effort that needs to take place, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, there are things we can do, we can get to that really allow us to start moving forward. Um, the North Korean regime's got to be able to be consistent in terms of how, how it responds to this overture because, again, let's be frank, the United States and our president gave away quite a bit. Kim Jong-un gave away nothing right now, but we had a what I call a breathtakingly unique summit that took place, and we need to make sure we can start moving in the right direction, very, very small steps, but gain some momentum. So I think that's immediately, I mean, I'm feeling very upbeat, very buoyed by all of this, but again, we gotta, we gotta start scoring some points. Peter, what's your take? You know, I'd love to agree even more wholeheartedly with what, you know, Spider Marks is saying. I'm a little bit more nervous that this really still comes down to two personalities, both of whom have very large egos, both of them like people to bow down to them. And I suspect that we are going to run into some road bumps as they clash a little bit and both expecting to be kind of top dogs. So my concern is that the next step is probably a little bit of a step backwards as the egos clash and we find out the sandbox just isn't big enough for those two to play in. I hope I'm wrong, but that's been, you know, Trump's sort of way of negotiating and moving forward, and it's been Kim's, I think, in the past. So I'm a little bit more nervous that we will hear bad news before more good news. I hope I'm wrong. May I pile on to that for a second, Rachel? Yes, of course. Yeah, I, I, um, my, my response to that is, you, you know, Peter, you're absolutely spot on in terms of you know, what I would call the profiling of those two leaders that were together. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that our administration, in a very measured way, understands more fully than any other nation the consequences and the applications of nuclear power and the controls um, that are necessary in order to be a nuclear state. And clearly, North Korea has never embraced those, um, those requirements. They've never been a player in the global community of nations. They've always been isolated. And I think the United States will be able to demonstrate how, with this new capability North Korea has, they need to, they need to act in a, in a rather different way. And I'm hopeful again that it won't be, uh, you're exactly spot on, but I hope it won't be just these two personalities that are taking, taking the reins exclusively, but there will be some form of delegation to others. But when you look at you know, the video that, was, that the president showed Chairman Kim um, was all about Chairman Kim. You're exactly right. I mean, our president was stroking the heck out of that guy saying, look, you're, you're the big guy, ball's in your court, decision's yours, you, you're at, you, you know, you, you're at an inflection point. You can, you can break right or you can break left. Uh, uh, it's up to you to make that decision, and clearly one outcome really presents a future for North Korea that you don't even realize is so incredibly uh, beautiful and wonderful and the possibilities are limitless. Just look at your, your sister or brother to the south. You know, in 1953, South Korea was completely de devastated. All forms of life were essentially wiped out. The landscape was the, was the surface of the moon. And look at it today. It's a miracle, absolute miracle. Same thing can happen in North Korea. Um, and I'm hopeful that our respective teams can move in the right direction. But your caution is well-placed. Back to you, Rachel. 
Well, uh, building off of South Korea's growth, um, sir, do you see, I mean, I know there's so many steps before, I guess we can even conceptualize it, but what would growth in North Korea look like economically, diplomatically? Um, can you talk through like what those steps may actually be and how the international community would have to really coalesce to make that happen? Well, I think the um, clearly economic growth in North Korea is a whiteboard and there's a lot, there's nothing but upside and possibilities. Several things obviously have to take, many things have to take place and there has to be a change in the attitude toward commerce and the application of economics in the North. But if there are security guarantees in place, and that means the armistice that suspended hostilities on the peninsula, you know, the war is not over, was replaced, if the armistice was replaced with a peace treaty, then that would be, follow on would be some form of diplomatic recognition of the North. There'd be no unification of North and South, let there be no doubt about that. But you'd have North Korea, now being welcomed uh, more more fulsomely as an international partner, or at least a member, if you will, uh, of the international community, and the United States could recognize Pyongyang, um, we would then open an embassy, and if we could have some security guarantees in place so that Kim knew that he was not at risk, his regime was not at risk, then the money will start to flow, and the opportunities will be there. And so you look at, I would demure to Peter, than in terms of how what those next steps would look like. But I would think the companies that today are postured both in China, South Korea, and regionally um, in Asia, Northeast Asia, would have would be in the catbird seat, would be in that position leaning forward, uh, prepared to work in a in a um in in a in a very deliberate way to start to gain a foothold in North Korea and start to shape what that economy would look like. And I would think it would start with biomedical research and, and healthcare, um, uh, food distribution, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but then again, um, it would be at the request of North Korea. I, North Korea would have to say, here's our list of um, opportunities for others and some requirements that we have. And we have industries, international industries are in that region that could really benefit from this this opening. But I'd love to hear what, what Peter thinks uh, relative to that. Yeah, I think it would be a great opportunity for a lot of businesses. I think the ability to produce natural resources out there as well. You know, there, there are a lot of natural resources in North that are not well developed given their current situation. My concern is that what we're seeing is the U.S. to a large degree failed to step in on opportunities like that and you're seeing whether it's Russia or China really take a much stronger leadership role. And even a recent example that concerns me is in Venezuela, where they needed help getting oil production up and running. It wasn't the U.S. that stepped in. It was actually India that stepped in. So my concern is do we have the political will to really drive and take advantage of any peace we create in North Korea, or will we lose the initiative to the Russias and the Chinas of the world? Well, you know, Peter, it's really a definition of risk mitigation. Um, you have your finger on this pulse, I think, pretty well. I mean, what's the what's the level of risk that our U.S.-based um, global engagement, you know, th those industries, how much risk are they willing to accept? I mean, your description of Venezuela is 
is perfect. I mean, the United States, I mean, I'm, I'm sure various oil and gas companies went, ah, the risk threshold's too high. You know, our, um, our, our stockholders, our shareholders are not going to want us to put this level of risk out there. The upside uh, is mitigated against the potential downside. Ergo, we're not going to get engaged. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, how, how do we, without having people just rush in and be foolhardy, you know, how do we re- really encourage, how do we incentivize that type of risk taking? You know, I think it almost has to come with some government aid. To a large degree, we're fighting more and more against, you know, national, you know, countries that behave on a national basis, whether it's China, India, Russia, where they are aiding their companies. We're even seeing it in competition in other fields, whether it's aerospace, where, you know, the European Union is very supportive of Airbus. Here domestically, we still can't even get Exxon Bank up and running properly, and that's become an issue for places that are trying to develop even you know, liquid natural gas. So it feels that we've stepped away from a more coordinated and holistic approach, and I think you're right. A standalone company is going to have difficulty entering some of these regions aggressively, especially when they're competing against you know, other companies that maybe have national support. So I think D.C. has got to get around this and rally around this, and figure out ways to take advantage of the situations we are creating. I think without us, the North Korea situation would be far worse. We're the ones kind of producing a lot of the results that are leading us towards this potential good outcome. And yet I don't know that we have the follow through that we should have. And that's a concern. And it's a concern when we go out and talk to a lot of our corporate customers that they feel sometimes we're competing, you know, with one harm tied behind our back. And it's a difficult environment. Do, do you think the U.S. is aligned with agencies like the World Bank in terms of policy priorities and how to, to uh, address what seems to me and what we've just discussed is a real opportunity, but with some real risk? I think we're not as aligned as we could be. I think we still don't have enough people you know, in all the various offices. There's not enough of a coordinated approach, or maybe better said, it's, there's not enough delegation. So everything seems to funnel back up to you know a relatively small group of people leading the country, which I think makes it difficult to handle so many you know issues or topics at any given time. And I think we really need to kind of push this and make sure people feel the ability to you know drive their businesses and drive things like the Exxon Bank and realize that it's not just trade wars that we have to fight, but we have to fight and do better on supporting our companies across the board. I always like the generals, you know, the geopolitical group tends to talk about, you know, businesses following the flag, and we just don't seem to be planting that flag the way we used to. And you know what else is is very apparent? I'm saying this with a smile on my face, that, you know, consistency um, and the alignment of messaging uh, within the administration is a, a challenge right now. I mean, we see it uh, manifest every day, and so if the if business follows the flag, we don't know which way the flag's going, and or, or maybe there are a bunch of flags and they're going in a bunch of different directions. And so that causes the challenges. You know, people are going to hesitate. And when you hesitate, you, you, you'll you'll obviously very often you'll move in a different direction, and you won't reconsider that possibility. It becomes very fleeting. No, I think that's a great point, and. To some degree, I think we're hopeful that maybe post the midterm elections, there'll be some more clarity and the ability to move on or focus on some of these things that haven't been high priority. 
but you know are crucial for you know the way forward for the U.S. Man, you ate some happy sauce for breakfast this morning. I don't know about the midterms. <laughs> I, I have no clue whether that's going to be a, a godsend or just going to be an invitation to struggle. Um, I don't know. I want to be optimistic about this. I, I hope we can get some alignment or at least some agreement across the aisle that allows us to have some consistency. But we'll we'll see. We'll see, Peter. Maybe they can just get to the point where they agree the sky is blue. It's something simple like that. Yeah, <laughs> That's in question. Why is the sky blue? Well, gentlemen, um, along that those same lines, so uh, we survey our geopolitical intelligence group, you know, on a near weekly basis, and something that has uh, been a focus of our generals and admirals has been the deteriorating uh, relationship with Turkey. It's not something that gets a ton of media attention. Erdogan initiated some snap elections that are, we'll see come to fruition this weekend. Uh, General Marks, I'd love to hear what you think about where we see Turkey as far as a NATO ally um, and their support Syria and how they deal with Russia. Um, just talk through that. Well, I, I need to tell you, Rachel, our relationship with Turkey is an example of the complicated nature of a really volatile world competing national interests, uh, growth of nationalism, um, potential decay of the EU, Brexit. I mean, these are all just – and the war in Syria, which is a total mess, um, it really is kind of challenging, challenging the international order and very specifically our diplomatic efforts in a pretty significant way. Um, bear in mind with Turkey. Um, first of all, Turkey's still in a state of, of emergency. You know, Erdogan put Turkey in a state of emergency following the coup in 2016, and as a result of that, he's jailed a lot of opposition leaders. He's removed a lot of senior military leaders. Um, Turkey is a nation that every 10 years, just look at its history, every 10 years there's a coup. So we're two years into this cycle of peace, if you will, of non, non-coup non time, but another one's coming up. Uh, this election is going to be significant because following this election for president, the po- the position of the prime minister goes away and becomes consolidated. So the head of state, the president, and the head of government, the prime minister, will be combined into a very powerful executive, not dissimilar to the United States um, in terms of that executive's authority to appoint cabinet members and the authority to appoint members to their Supreme Court board is what they call it. Um, so it's a significant time. But because Erdogan is the president, Erdogan established the state of emergency. State of emergency continues in place. I think this is a foregone conclusion that Erdogan will be reelected in a far more powerful way. But the issues that are driving Turkey right now, uh, there are several. One is their economy is essentially in the in the dumps. It's a it's a challenge right now in their currency as well as their debt. Um, you've got the war on their border in Syria. Turkey's involved in Syria. Um, their prime concern is their border area and their um, efforts against the Kurds, the PKK, which is a recognized international terrorist organization. So they are conducting operations to, to, to ensure their, quote, safe zones and border areas and their primary efforts are to go against the PKK. The challenge there is that the United States 
has essentially not allied itself, but has allowed the PKK and encouraged the PKK to do a significant, uh, achieve a significant success against ISIS in Turkey. So you've got two NATO partners, the United States and Turkey, that are directly opposed uh, along one particular vector in, in this fight in Syria, which you know, potentially you could have Turkish forces and U.S. forces in a gunfight. That would absolutely be unprecedented and would be frightening to the NATO alliance to have two NATO allies shooting at each other. Whether it's intentional or not, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, warfare on the ground is so incredibly confusing. Things like this can happen, except especially when you're in close proximity. And as a result of Turkey's engagement in Syria, Turkey now is suffering from terrorist attacks from from Kurds and others in Turkey. So they have to be very, very conscious of that. So they got an internal clampdown during this period of state of emergency, which reinforces the institution of the state of emergency. And then also you have Syrian refugees, very large numbers in Turkey. Uh, Turkey has said they will hold on to those refugees. They're not necessarily going to push them forward across the Bosporus and into Europe. Um, they'll hold on to them. And then when the hostilities in Syria are terminated, whatever that looks like, who knows, or when that'll be, Turkey will allow these Syrian refugees to go back home. There has to be the assumption that they're going to want to go back home. Syria is such a terrible mess. I'm not sanguine that that's necessarily going to be the direction that these Syrian refugees are going to want to go. So um, Erdogan is being opposed. There are five candidates for this position of president. Um, one of them is a member of of their parliament, and he's a very energetic, uh, bright, kind of a visible character. But again, and then on the other extreme, you have one of the um, one of the candidates is in prison. He was imprisoned as a result of the coup, and is campaigning from a prison cell. Um, it, it's a it's a rather bizarre scene, but there are um, you know privileges that that all candidates have under Turkish law, and from his prison cell, he is exercising those those authorizations, those authorities, those legal parameters that he has. Um, but there's little chance that these candidates will affect the outcome of the presidential election. But what they will affect most definitely is the makeup in parliament. Because if you reach a certain threshold of your party's election in a parliamentary system, you end up with a representation in parliament. So Erdogan may end up being a more powerful president with the consolidation of the powers of the prime minister, but he may not have a majority in the parliament. And as a result of that, then you have internal fighting. And then the, the unknown is, when is he going to lift the, the state of emergency? And um, the election will tell a lot. And the parliamentary majority will, or at least the makeup, will tell a lot about when that event occurs. Back to you, Rachel. I feel like Turkey is changing its identity, or at least how I've always seen the Turkish identity as this moderate, secular Islamic society, you know, with one foot in the West, one foot in the East. And it seems like Erdogan is making, he's consolidating power. He's really uh, hammering down on intellectual institutions and, and bringing a much more conservative um, interpretation of Islam to Turkish society. Uh, how is that helping achieve? Turkish national interests. What is that? Just a, a way to consolidate power for him? Um, how does the U.S. interpret that 
Is that infringe on our, uh, how we utilize Turkey to promote our national interests? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, every leader in Turkey and anyone who has studied that part of the world will use Ataturk and his efforts back in the 20s to create a more modern Turkey following World War One and the emergence of Turkey as an international power and a player and really a bridge between as East and West, as you described. And so everybody uses that example to their advantage. And um, clearly Erdogan is doing that, uh, I would say, on a personal level. He is consolidating power. He was the prime minister back in the year, what, 2003, he was elected prime minister, and he's been president since 2014. So this is a figure that has been prominent in Turkish, modern Turkish history, and he's consolidated power, consolidated power, consolidated power over the course of these 15 years, and it looks like he's now the immovable object. Um, there will be challenges, and there are challenges, primarily because Turkey is a modern society. There are efforts that Erdogan is putting in place to clamp down on that. Obviously, the media is catching hell from Erdogan based on the coup and based on the state of emergency, and he's, he's shutting down voices of opposition. And as a result of that, he becomes, ergo, he becomes more powerful. Um, yet there are challenges because there, there are efforts, obviously, to keep Turkey moving along a path that is a little more open and um, a little more conservative in its uh, governmental spins and how it um, kind of enacts or engages internationally. But Erdogan now, as a result of his efforts, has made a very clear statement that Turkey's posture is one that will be increasingly independent. Um, sadly, at the same time you get that impression, he is aligning himself in a very clear way with um, Putin. And there have been some agreements with Russia that are not in NATO's best interest, but clearly are in Turkey's defined self-interest. And that's that's very troubling. I mean, why why Turkey would buy air defense, very modern air defense capabilities from Russia and not partners in NATO clearly tells you one thing. It's not a surprise. He's consolidating power. And this is a statement which essentially is, hey, NATO, screw you. Um, I'm still a member of NATO, but I want it under my terms. And I think my relationship with I, Erdogan's relationship with Russia and Putin is to my advantage and um, allows me, again, to assert myself in a very positive, very definitive and very aggressive way. So we, we've got some challenges with Turkey. Um, my concern is that Turkey, the next move with Turkey could be a request to you know, invalidate its membership in NATO or to maintain its relationship in NATO, but to, you know, alter its posture militarily within the command structure. Um, we've seen this in the past. Uh, we could, with France, back in the, you know, late 60s, mid-60s, late 60s, we may see this going forward with Turkey. I would not be surprised, but I would be very troubled if that was the outcome. All right. Well, thank you, um, Rachel, for, for sharing that uh, geopolitical uh, outlook. And then let's go ahead and ask uh, Peter, um, what is your market outlook, uh, you know, from where you sit right now? Right now, we turned a little bit bearish on equities, a little bit bullish on yields. That started last week. And there's several things. I think this narrative about trade wars is overblown. There are other problems that we're facing. 
and we write about this. You can find them on you know, www.academysecurities.com under Macro Insights. You can look through the list of reports. But in a quick summary, the Fed was far more hawkish than I expected. Powell was far more you know, positive on the economy than we see in some of the data. So I think the risk of a Fed mistake is increasing. That is part of the reason we're seeing some pressure on markets. Away from that, there's a consensus view that somehow Italy is off the table until the end of the summer, or at least the end of the World Cup. I don't see that being the case. I think Europe is going to continue to cause some volatility for markets, and Italy remains an issue that needs to be resolved. And away from that, we just see kind of bouts of lack of liquidity. There's so many other issues in the world that we're facing. And even to some extent, I really thought the AT&T deal being cleared um, by the DOJ would have been more positive for risk assets. That's not occurring. And then the final part I just want to touch on recently is we've been very you know, focused on trade wars. It's been a very good um, mesh between the geopolitical insights that we have as well as you know, our political and economic insights. And what's concerning me there is I think we really need a true victory in trade wars where we get intellectual property rights protection, we receive reciprocal access to markets. That is, I think, what's really necessary to take markets to new highs. The message I'm getting out of D.C., I think, is there's enough confusion there that we may take what I would call a fake, you know, quote-unquote fake victory, where China agrees to buy a bunch more products, that in reality they are going to be buying more from us anyways, things like liquid natural gas, things like soybeans. So I think we've got to be very careful, and I don't think markets will react as positively as that. So I'm looking for a little bit of a near-term pullback. And one area we're focusing on and going to have some reports on next week is emerging markets, where, again, our geopolitical expertise is high. And that is an area of increasing concern to markets here domestically. As those markets get cheaper and cheaper, I think it will put some pressure on our markets. So unfortunately, I'm a little bit bearish equities here right now. Um, but hopefully it will not be a large correction. Thanks, Andy. Well, thanks. Well, thanks, Peter, very much for that. And our listeners, again, that website, you can see Peter's commentary, www.academysecurities.com slash macro insights. And if you have an interest uh, to speak uh, with Peter directly about some of this stuff, um, you could email at info at academysecurities.com. And uh, we love uh, hooking Peter up with uh, with our clients and friends to have a, a more direct uh, conversation. So thanks again, Peter, for that. Thanks very much, Andy. Hey, Andy, this is uh, this is General Marks. Um, on a personal note, I think this is a pretty special day for you. Is it not? Twelve years ago, you were a young leader, Marine in combat, and um, I, I think it's important. I, I'm no intent to put a personal spotlight on you, but I think you're. This is a pretty special day, pretty important day, and I'd love it. I'd love it if you would share. What, what occurred, kind of where, where you are in life relative to that? Yeah, absolutely, sir. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. And, yeah, so June 20th is, is my – we call them in the, in the military, we, we call it our alive day. Um, basically, it's uh, probably – for, for for many folks, it's probably the worst day they've ever had, um, and and uh, in crazy uh, military form, we kind of celebrate the fact that, that wasn't the last day uh, that we had either. James Gandolfi did a great uh, film that was on HBO called Alive Day Memories, uh, where he interviewed Iraq veterans um, about their alive days uh, as well, and it's just a, it's just an important day um, to me personally to to kind of look back and reflect. 
um, you know, be grateful. Um, I was uh, on my second deployment to Iraq uh, doing some some intelligence work and uh, intel- human intelligence collection, uh, you know, and, and you've got to get out there and, and meet the people to do that. So uh, riding around in a, in a Humvee uh, on a convoy and a, uh, a large uh, IED was set off below the truck and uh, ripped the front half of the truck off. Um, myself, uh, I sustained some pretty significant injuries, broke a bunch of bones in my legs and my ribs and my neck, which, you know, then caused, um, you know, paralysis. So, um, you know, so some lasting stuff, but you know what, uh, to look back on it and, 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 and I do so every year and now it's been 12 years, which is just, you know, seems like it's, it's, uh, it's, it hasn't been that long. Um, because life, you know, flashes past, and uh, but just, just the, you know, the the human experience is just a- incredible to me. You know, I went from then having a really bad day um, to you know this year, uh, you know, working at Academy, uh, living in Southern California, um, you know, able to really make a difference uh, in our in our company and the work we do for our clients. Uh, one of my accounts came to market this week, and actually on my live day, we were able to, uh, you know, get a big win at Academy and a, and a great win for one of our clients as well. Um, you know, end of the day, put my kids to bed, sit there with my wife and drink a beer on, on our back deck and watch the sunset over California. I mean, just, uh, you know, just to reflect on that and and think of the amazing Americans, uh, my brothers who were there to make sure that, you know, I got the medical treatment I needed. Um, the uh, first, the first uh, surgeons and doctors that I, that I had uh, that really helped me get out of there safely. And then, you know, all along the way, it's been 12 years now. So there's been a lot of people and a, and a lot of organizations that have helped and really to find purpose again. And, uh, you know, being, be con- having that continued uh, forward motion in my life. And uh, Academy Securities is a big part of that. You know, half of our half of our staff are veterans, and uh, you know, to really have that's a that's a you know, when you're working in the military, you have a very you know impactful job and occupation, and uh, you know, it's it's important, uh, I believe, to 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 individuals that that are kind of wired that way um, to have employment that's important, and uh, you know, so it's great to uh, be a part of Academy where I can get that that that. That focus and that and that purpose that that I need, um, but just you know, just just overall, just it's been you know, it's been a great twelve years <laughs> from that day, and uh, you know, looking forward to many more. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks for uh, for uh, asking me about that. I, I love sharing the story because um, you know it's uh, it's a great place to be where I'm at now. I'm incredibly grateful, incredibly grateful. So, but then also um, you know. As far as Academy goes, we have some things coming up this week. I mean, Spider, you're going to be seeing some some clients in uh, in New York and then and then Charlotte, correct? Absolutely, Andy, and and yeah, I am. And, and but let me tell you, let me just take a step back here and tell you, you inspire us every day. We are blessed. The Academy Securities team is blessed to have you as a part of our family. We are better because of you. So thanks for your service. God bless mm-hmm. you, man. And uh, and thanks, thanks for sharing. Congratulations. Well, Let's have another you. thirty more, another thirty or forty right. or fifty more live days, man. Right. Let's do that. Let's do it. Let's, Let's do, do that. It. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, going to, uh, going to New York, we're meeting with a couple of clients in New York city, um, next week early and then jumping on a plane, uh, with one of our latest hires and going down to Charlotte to link up with some, some clients as well. And, and clearly my role is I, I'm absolutely humbled to be a part, a part of all of this, but we're able to sit down with clients and, and talk about issues that are on there, my top of mind for them, and maybe provide a little bit of clarity around, some significant decisions that, that uh, they're about mm-hmm. to make. So, yeah, Absolutely. thanks, Andy, for asking. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff coming up. And actually, Rachel, we have one or more of our advisory board members on the road uh, this week. You want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, we have General David Deptula. He ran the air campaign uh, in Afghanistan and the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, very distinguished as all our uh, advisory board members are, but he'll be out in San Francisco and Silicon Valley uh, meeting with some of our clients out there. Um, and this is a huge part of our geopolitical intelligence group's operation is we want to get them in front of our clients so that you can have those one-on-one uh, discussions, ask those candid questions that are really relevant to you and your business. Yeah, that's really great. And then our CEO, Chance Mims, is going to be headed up there as well, and I get to go up there um, with him and see some of our clients. So I think a bunch of us are going to be on the road. It's a good time. So I'll have to get some of that great airport food as well. Um, but, uh, hey, so all the listeners, thank you so much for joining us uh, today um, for the podcast. We hope this is valuable to you. If you have any uh, further questions or any topics that uh, are, interest, uh, are of interest to you, uh, please go ahead and email us at info at academysecurities.com and we will gladly um, see what we can do for you. Uh, but thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Spider and Peter and Rachel. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for getting on the podcast today. Thanks, Andy. Andy. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great Appreciate day. You guys. you guys have a great one.